0: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 28. The Socialist. The college was a quiet place over Christmas. The young gentlemen had all gone down to celebrate with their families at their various piles, or else in the south of France, and even further afield. Only the usual handful of elderly single dons were still in residence, to be attended to over Yuletide. Not a deal of point even pinning up the mistletoe, to be frank. My time with the Carnot Company would have seemed like a strange far-off dream were it not for the stud marks from Billy Rag's boot on my knee and the nine-inch scar running north-south where the surgeon had opened up my leg to root around in there for the halves of my shattered kneecap. Not to mention the crutch I still needed to hobble about on a whole month and a half later. So there I was, back in the ivy-clad embrace of college life and back in the bosom of my family. Not that they made a deal of a fuss about it. When I first arrived back, I limped painfully into the kitchens to greet my mother, who was just then engaged in making several hundred mince pies by the look of things, each of which would bear an imprint of the college crest. And she looked up, smiled, and said, ''Hello, dear,'' and then carried right on with her work. I wondered if she'd even noticed that I'd been away for a couple of years. I found my brother polishing shoes, and he squinted semi-curiously at the crutch I was leaning on. ''Hurt your poor little leg, is it?'' he said with withering mock concern. "'Broke it,' I replied, not particularly wishing to go into details. "'When I was fighting the Boer,' Lance said, without a pause in his shoe shining, "Bloke standing next to me had his leg shot clean off, "'and he still drove off the bastards with an empty gun and a bayonet. "'Hopped after him, he did, screaming like a banshee. "'Oh?' I said nonchalantly. "'I was secretly impressed, as Lance very rarely spoke of his time in South Africa. "'Yeah,' he said, "'so don't be such a sissy. "'Welcome home, Arthur.' My father was delighted to have me back at the college, thus, to his way of thinking, proving that he'd been right all along and that the theatre was something I needed to get out of my system. He was planning to have me back in harness for the start of the new term in January, and to that end was diligently working on my fitness. The doctor had told me that I should be perfectly mobile again once I'd built up the muscles in my leg that had wasted away through forced inactivity, and what better way to accomplish this, my father reasoned, than resuming college rounds?' And so I found myself every morning, noon and night, limping around the old circuit, past the still ghastly Wren Chapel, past the red brick library, past Pitt the Younger, past the Master's Lodge and its lily pond, down to the new court that was older than many a college's old court, back up under the arch between the kitchens and the dining hall, and back to the fireside at the Porter's Lodge. As I walked, I pondered over and over again the same question. What the hell happened? I had only my own vague, shadowy remembrances and a smattering of anecdotal evidence to go on as I struggled to make sense of it all. After I passed out at the Oxford, I was carried from the stage unconscious, thus missing the traditional cry of, Is there a doctor in the house? There was, apparently, a deal of confusion as to what would happen then. At that point there were over a hundred people on the stage, twenty-two footballers and eighty supers, not to mention my pal Mike the referee. Kent and Keith a right pair of banjo-toting chancers, saw their chance of saving the day in front of Fred Carno and were trying to drop the tabs in so they could begin some of their inane cross-talk. But before that calamity could occur... Why, what was this? Another Stiffy the Goalkeeper pranced onto the stage in identical costume, but with two fully operational lower limbs, and the sketch, the well-oiled machine, resumed where it had left off and played to its triumphant conclusion almost as if nothing at all had happened. Yes, Charlie Chaplin saved the day... He was the hero of the hour. My one consolation was that I remained spark-out and missed the whole thing. When I awoke, I quickly wished that I had not. The pain in my knee was excruciating, and to make matters worse, I'd been laid on a chaise-long backstage just a couple of yards away from what seemed to be a victory celebration. A doctor had materialised, and he'd secured some ether... "'He was not especially expert in administering it, however.' "'Mike Asher told me afterwards that he suspected the man was actually a veterinarian. "'So the next few minutes I passed in a sort of dream-like semi-consciousness, "'from which I retained only fleeting and impressionistic recollections, "'such as the anxious face of Rafe Luscombe peering over the doctor's shoulder, "'chaplin being carried around on the shoulders of Fred Spikesley and Jimmy Crabtree, "'Carno leaning over me and saying, "'You had your chance and you blew it.' "'Rafe Luscombe in urgent discussion with Alf reeves frowning, nodding, Tilly clapping and smiling, and then embracing Charlie when the footballers finally dropped him to the ground. The whole crowd of them parting as I hovered magically in mid-air and passed amongst them. I appreciate now that I was being carried from the building, and faces looking down at me, some pitying, but most laughing. The shock of the cold night air as I was bundled towards a waiting hansom. Walpink shaking his head sorrowfully and saying, "'You know, funny thing, I told him to break his leg.' "'Loafing against the wall outside the stage door, "'the malevolent leering face and ginger halo of Mr. Testicle-nose "'tucking a bunch of fivers into his jacket pocket. "'Sid Chaplin glancing furtively at me "'and then ducking back into the warmth of the theatre. "'Then the ether won its final victory over my senses, "'and when I woke once more it was the next day "'and I was in a hospital bed. "'Winter sunlight streamed in through the windows.' I looked around and saw several bunches of flowers by my bedside. My right leg was bandaged and plastered from hip to ankle, and itched damnably, although, blessedly, the pain of the night before had receded. I could not get up and move about, so I resigned myself to lying there, waiting for an explanation to present itself, which in due course it did, courtesy of my first visitor, Mr Alfred Reeves, Esquire. "'What ho, Alf,' I said feebly as he hoved into view. "'Good afternoon, Arthur,' Alf said, taking a seat by my bed. "'How does it feel?' "'Sore,' I said. "'I'll bet,' i grimaced at the plaster cast on my leg. "'Still, it'll be right as rain in a month or two, I'm told, "'and for that you can thank your college chum. "'Mr Luscombe, splendid young fella. "'He has secured you the very best of care from a specialist surgeon "'who it seems is an old friend of his family, "'so things could be much worse.' "'I nodded. He's a good sort. "'And is he... well, is he paying for all this too?' "'I waved my hands to indicate the hospital room, "'which was well above the average in my estimation. "'Oh, by no means,' Alf said. "'He offered, but it was not necessary to trouble him.' "'I frowned. "'Who, then? The Governor, I suppose, takes care of his own?' "'Wrong again,' said Alf. "'No. Any and all bills are to be sent at her express instruction to Miss Mary Lloyd.' "'Well, I was flabbergasted. "'I'd never met the lady, although I knew her by sight, of course, "'for hers was one of the most famous faces in the country.' "'What?' I said. "'But why on earth would...?' "'And words failed me. "'Alf fixed me with a glistening gaze, "'apparently moved by what he had to say. "'It took a deal of courage to stand up to Karno "'the way you did, Arthur, my lad, "'and it has not gone unnoticed. "'Edith is not without good and loyal friends in the world, "'and they appreciate what you did for her. "'Appreciate it very much. "'Mary Lloyd is one such, and I am another, "'and let me assure you that you will find us grateful. "'There it is. "'Let me not go on about it, for I shall embarrass us both.' So it appeared that I'd acquired the aspect of a knight in shining armour. No one but myself, and Tilly, of course, knew of the provocation I had for bearding the governor in his den that day, and the story being put about by good old Alf was that I'd taken a heroic and righteous moral stand against my scheming boss on poor Edith Carnot's behalf, with a selfless lack of regard to the damage this might do to my own prospects.' And once I was recovered enough to return to Streatham, I found that Charlie and Clara Bell could not do enough for me, and Edith herself and Freddie K. Jr. were frequent and attentive visitors. I had cakes and sweets and jellied fruits and endless cups of tea and plumped pillows, until I began to feel quite the fraud. It began to oppress me, to be honest, which is how I came to consider returning to Cambridge for a spell. And now that I was here, it was harder and harder to imagine ever going back. The new term came around, and the college filled up once again with bright young things. I was finding it easier every day to move around now with the help of a cane from the Porter's Lodge's lost property cupboard, even though the knee still looked like a badly made mailbag, improbably lumpy and haphazardly stitched. I kept my head down and got on with my various duties. I did the rounds, I took over O and P staircases again, I fetched, I carried, I laundered, I swept, I served the port at high table, although not yet able to manage the heavier trays with any confidence. I even caught one young gentleman sneaking in after the gates were locked, as Rafe Luscombe had done years, was it years, earlier. I couldn't give chase because of the knee, of course, but I did manage to trip the fellow up with my cane and extract gatepence from him. My father was disgustingly happy about how things had turned out, and rarely passed up the opportunity to share his vision for the future with me. This involved passing on more and more responsibility to me, and beginning his own slow easing into a comfortable and prestigious armchair of a retirement, during which he would stroll around the college as a much-loved institution. My own mood was dark, however. The disappointment of the showdown at the Oxford weighed heavily on me. But even that was not as burdensome as the recollection of how things stood between myself and Tilly. It was still hard to even think of her and Carno together that afternoon, Carno unbuckling his belt. It was even harder to remember her small voice saying, "'It was for you, Arthur, so I could be with you.' Carno giving a little cough. There was not even much comfort in the memory of the magical time we spent together on that tour, masquerading as man and wife, for I'd messed that up, and then just as surely messed everything up again.' More and more I would slip out of the front gate once dinner was done, and nip down to the river for a swift pint or three at the mill. There I would usually sit by myself, trying to force my brain not to think about Charlie as a number one comic. Beer helped, but not much, even though I was now following the advice of the great Gus Elan, and having at least half a pint of ale at every meal, including breakfast and another meal or two besides that I had invented between luncheon and supper. I puzzled away relentlessly at the events of that night at the Oxford. The more I thought about it, the more I thought I had something. I remembered Spikesley and Crabtree running their book on the contest between myself and Chaplin, complaining that we were too evenly matched. I remembered their special rehearsals with my rival, and Billy Rag offering his services in a similar regard to me. Then Charlie's performance went badly, thanks to the two of them, and the odds suddenly became a lot more interesting.' Was it not possible that the footballers had deliberately sabotaged Charlie so that they would then be able to take heavy bets on me from the likes of Rafe Luscombe, knowing that rag was going to ruin my chances in turn? It was more than possible. The swine were easily selfish enough and venal enough to devise a scheme of that sort. I vented my furious imaginings on the footballers then, as Charlie and I seemed to be mere pawns in their game. In fact, I reasoned, the whole contest had actually been decided on the toss of a coin in Carnot's office. Even though I was not, now I think of it, happy, i decided that the college was going to be my life from now on. How could I return to the fun factory now? My relationship with Karno was surely in ruins, and how could I even contemplate the humiliation of working under Charlie, still less having to meet Tilly again? I tried to put the whole thing from my mind, but it was hard. It was hard. One afternoon, I popped into a cake shop, fitzes around the corner from the Porter's Lodge, to collect some pink coconut confections that a Mr Vermont on one of my staircases was particularly fond of, and who should be there taking tea with a bunch of hangers-on and acolytes but the Rotter, Harry Rottenberg, large as life, the progenitor of the mechanical brontosaurus which had propelled me into show business, well, regurgitated me into show business. I could not resist introducing myself. What ho, Rotter, I said at his shoulder. He was in mid-anecdote and turned to see who had dared to interrupt his flow. His florid face clouded as he tried to place me. "'Dando,' I said. "'The varsity BC!' I turned to his companions while he digested this. "'I got eaten by a mechanical dinosaur. Marvellous fun!' "'Indeed, indeed!' the rotter cried once the light had dawned, standing to pump my hand warmly. "'How do you do, my dear fellow? How do you do? Will you join us?' I held up the box of coconut treats by the string and explained that, sadly, I was expected back at the college.' "'Well, look here, you mu- you absolutely must come to the show.' He snapped his fingers at a disciple who fumbled in his coat pocket and came up with a small fly-sheet. "'Tonight we try out my latest. Come and see!' And so that night, instead of disappearing down to the pub to wallow in misery and ale as had become my habit, I took myself off to see the show at the new theatre, It was the first night of a footlight's effort, written, naturally, by the rotter himself, a self-styled musical satire entitled The Socialist, ridiculing the political ideas being espoused by Mr Shaw, Mr Wells and the Fabian Society. The idea of the piece involved a college succumbing to socialism, with hilarious consequences. The students marked their own examinations and awarded each other firsts. In a society where everyone is equal, you see, what is the point of a second-class degree? Now, this show may sound flimsy and insubstantial, but it forcibly reminded me of something else I'd turned my back on. Those Footlights boys were not a patch on the Fun Factory journeymen I'd been used to working with, but watching them made me think of what it was like to be on the stage. It made me think of the power, frankly, and whether I would ever feel anything so intoxicating again. I found I missed it like a physical pain. Then there was the ridiculous play itself, with its Yaboo sucks to the workers. It brought home to me that if I were to continue as I was, as a college servant, then I would always belong to that downtrodden and unregarded class, always be a tugging my forelock, always be serving the port, making the beds and clearing up after the young gentleman. Whereas, at the fun factory, it struck me, one man was reckoned superior to another only by virtue of his talents.' And when we Carno boys were travelling from city to city, peering out of the railway train windows at the factories and cobbled streets where the workers lived, or at the fancier Toffs dwellings on the hills, did we really see anywhere we would rather be? We were the chosen ones. We could do the things and go to the places and live the lives they could only dream of. It was useless to dwell on it, though. That part of my life was over. Carno was done with. Comedy was done with. For I could not bear to start from scratch somewhere else, or as a solo. Chaplin, our rivalry, was behind me and Tilly, ah, Tilly how could I look her in the eye again? Nothing, I thought would induce me to go within fifty miles of the blasted fun factory ever again until, one spring morning, a crisp white envelope arrived at the Porter's Lodge bearing my name an invitation to a wedding (laughs) Chapter 29 Let Me Call You Sweetheart Easter Saturday was a sweltering hot spring day and I found myself dressed to the nines and crammed into Brompton Oratory together with the cream of the British Music Hall. As the matrimonials were concluded, I glanced around the assembled crowd and felt the honour of being invited to this gathering, for you could hardly have afforded such a bill unless you were the Royal Command performance itself. The first of those, incidentally, was still a couple of years off, I think I'm right in saying, and Mary Lloyd was not invited to take part, how about that? Too saucy, apparently. Nor was Fred Carno, the single biggest draw in the world of the music hall, invited to submit a contribution to the entertainment.' Mary Lloyd was at this particular do, though, as were George Roby, Gus Elan, Albert Chevalier, and many more, as well as theatre managers and impresarios from across the capital. Alf Reeves was clearly a popular figure on the music hall scene, and there was quite a turnout to celebrate his nuptials. Happy though I was for old Alf, it wasn't my friendship with him that had brought me all the way down from Cambridge. It was his bride, lovely little Amy Minister, who had been on that Mummingbirds tour with me so many months before. She was friendly with Tilly Beckett, you see, and it was the chance of seeing her that had enlivened my every waking moment since the invitation had arrived, and had sent me running for the London train at the crack of dawn. The Carnot organisation was such a sensitive and hierarchical monster that Alf and Amy had had to restrict their invitations to the top level, or else invite absolutely everyone, so only the top number ones were there. Fred Kitchen, Billy Ritchie, Jimmy Russell and Johnny Doyle were in attendance, and so, sitting together near the front, were Sid and Charlie Chaplin. The whole affair's culminating act of diplomacy was the installation of the governor himself as Alf's best man. Anything else was unthinkable. Carno had been the very soul of generosity, and had not only volunteered the use of the entire fleet of Carno Company omnibuses to transport the assembled multitude to the reception, but had also offered up the fun factory itself to host the occasion. After the nuptials were officially concluded, we spilled out into the sunshine, and crammed higgledy-piggledy into the conveyances like a bunch of kids going to the seaside. The non carno people were not aware that the lower levels were strictly for the senior performers, of course, so I found myself cheerfully crammed on the open top deck between the celebrated Mr Eelan and Miss Lloyd, who waved at a few dozen star spotters on the pavement below. Off we rattled, over the river towards Camberwell, and I took the opportunity to introduce myself to the great Marie. Miss Lloyd, I said, we haven't met, although I have written to you to thank you for your generosity when my knee was broken. I am Arthur Dando. Of course you are, the great comedian cried. "'I recognises you, Arthur, and I recalls your letter. "'Most gracious it was. "'I'm very pleased to make your acquaintance at last.' "'Let me say again how grateful I am for your help,' I said. "'It was much appreciated.' "'Well,' Marie said, leaning in and confiding in hushed tones, "'what you did was much appreciated by me and all of Edith's friends, "'so let's say no more about it.' "'She patted me on the chest in a friendly manner, "'and I only discovered later that she'd slipped a five-pound note "'into my inside pocket. "'I did feel something of a fraud, I must confess.' Didn't give it back, though. The fun factory was transformed for the reception, with cream-coloured ribbons and yellow flowers, and running along the back wall was the big backdrop from the football match, which had been painted over so that the crowd was sporting buttonholes and top hats. I was seated with Edith Carno and her party, next to Freddie and across from Clara and Charlie Bell. They were all delighted to see me and treated me like some kind of martyred hero, which was a little embarrassing. The wedding party processed to the top table, and as they did so, some unseen hand flicked a switch on the big fans so that the arms on the backdrop waved in the air. Nice effect. Alf and Amy made their way to the position of honour, wreathed in smiles. Then came Carano and Maria, who tried to ignore our table completely as they passed, but Carno caught sight of me there and turned to stare, his eyes narrowing in surprise. I stared right back. I didn't work for him any more, and I didn't care what he thought of me. Then came the bridesmaids, two of Amy's sisters, and, my goodness, Tilly Beckett, looking a real picture, with her hair fully restored to its natural golden colour and her green eyes twinkling with happiness for her friend. I couldn't take my eyes off her. As luncheon was served, I turned to Freddie. That crowd scene will need a bit of cleaning up after this, won't it? I said. Oh, the football match is long gone, Freddie said. Did you not hear? Hear? I asked, hear what? Oh, well, a few days after that business at the Oxford, must have been the very day you left for Cambridge, I should think. Young Chaplin went down with bad laryngitis. Couldn't say a dicky bird. Well, if only you hadn't. He waved a fork at my knee and I completed his thought. Hadn't been crocked, I would have been right there to step in, wouldn't I? I sighed. So what? Will Pulaski did it, or who? No, the governor pulled the show entirely, scrapped it, cancelled all the bookings. He did what? He got wind that some of those football fellows had mucked about with the shows because of some gambling scheme that they'd cooked up, and he was so furious that he took it as a perfect opportunity to sack them all. I've never seen him so angry. He swears he'll never employ any of them ever again. Ha! I thought. Retribution. Justice. Comeuppance. Eat that, you money-grabbing swine. Do you know, I thought it might be that way, I said. So Billy Ragg broke my knee on purpose, do you think? Freddy shrugged. "'That one was sacked before the curtain hit the apron,' he said. "'The Governor did it himself. He was livid.' I could see Sid and Charlie Chaplin sitting together at the opposite side of the room. "'So if not the football match, what is Charlie doing now?' "'New piece,' Freddy said, chomping on a bit of beef. "'Called skating on roller skates. Two companies. Sid's number one of one, and Charlie's the number one of the other.' Suddenly I didn't feel like finishing my food. After the meal there were speeches, of course. I remember Carno's best man's speech well. He seemed to have the idea that we would like to hear a speech about himself, rather than the bride or groom particularly. After all, Alf and Amy worked for him, 52 weeks of the year, so his story was their story, in a way, was how he set it up. He told us a tale of how he had first come to London. Like many successful fellows, he enjoyed laying it on about how poor he had been to begin with, and even reverted to his thicker accent to remind us of his humble roots. He'd found himself on his uppers, and he and a pout had decided to work their way down to the capital to try their fortune. Young Carno had got hold of a glaziers' kit, and they tramped from town to town, mending windows and getting by that way, until they hit a rough patch. "'We come to this village, see?' the governor recounted, one thumb tucked into his waistcoat. "'And we hadn't a bean, not even price of a cup of tea. "'And there were no jobs to do, so we sat there on a wall, glum-like, and I says to Tom, "'See that shop window over there? That window could just break tonight.' And it morning they'd be glad to have it fixed. That night I slipped back into that village, bunged a brick through this window and a branch through that. And when we came along it morning shouting windows to mend, the whole town come a running, and that's how we made it down to London, smashing windows at night, mending them in morning. Sound familiar that story? Yeah, I Thought it might. Carno then moved on to his solemn duty of offering a toast to the lovely bridesmaids. I saw a look pass between the governor and Tilly as he raised his glass and struggled to interpret it. The image of the Goving forced itself upon me for the umpteenth time, but his crooked smile looked, what, hopeful, or was I the optimist? So, when are you coming back then? Freddie asked me suddenly. Clara's kept your room for you, haven't you, Clara? Of course I have, Clara said cheerily. Oh, well, I'm not sure the Governor would have me back after. Oh, nonsense, Clara said. He's hardly spoken to Charlie for nearly ten years, has he, Charlie? But he knows a good man when he's got one. People were beginning to mill about now in search of drink and conversation, so I excused myself and went for a wander rather than let them pursue the matter. Almost immediately I bumped into George Craig, last seen storming out of the Enterprise after being summarily fired, making his way back to his table with a couple of frothing glasses of champers. Hello, George, I said, I thought you were working for Wall Pink. No, no, George said with an almighty wink. I'm working for the Governor, don't you worry about that. And off he went to join Lily. I reckoned one way or another George must be a better actor than I'd ever given him credit for. I found myself a vantage point to where I could watch Tilly. She was smiling, fending off the drunken attentions of Billy Reeves, Alf's brother. I found myself close to the table where the Chaplin brothers were sitting, and when I glanced that way I caught Charlie looking at me. He beamed brightly all of a sudden, and bounced over to where I was standing. Grasping my hand and shaking it vigorously, he made a great business of inspecting my right trouser leg, as though he could see through it to the knee inside.' "'Arthur, how marvellous that you're here. Are you recovered?' "'I'll manage,' I said, holding up the cane I now walk with. "'Terrible business that was, terrible. "'We were all terribly shocked and worried about you, you know.' "'A brief mental image from the Oxford surfaced "'of Chaplin being carried around on shoulders, celebrating "'while an incompetent veterinarian overdosed me with ether. "'And, you know, I'd much rather have won that contest fair and square, "'and I would have done, I think. "'Well, you know I would have, don't you, deep down?' "'I, um,' I spluttered, but Charlie was chattering away, a bag of nerves. "'And I I know I didn't come to visit you, and I I should have, I should have, "'but you haven't congratulated me on my success either, now have you?' "'And he poked me in the chest reprovingly. "'Well, congratulations,' I managed to make myself say. "'Thank you, Arthur, thank you kindly. Better man won, eh?' "'Well, I didn't say that exactly,' I said, "'but his nervous chatter just rolled over it. "'Good, good, good. And so, are you back in harness, so to speak?' "'No, no, I'm just down for the day.' "'So when can we expect you to return to the strength?' he said, "'punching me playfully on the bicep. "'I'm not. I'm I'm working at the old college again. I'm not coming back.' He was shocked for a moment, and then the relief washed over his features. He couldn't hide it. "'So, Cambridge's gain is comedy's loss, eh? "'Well, well, well. It's a great pity, in a way, "'because I really think one day you might have been almost as good as me.' "'You what?' And, you know, really, things are going tremendously well for me just at the moment. Suddenly, with a rustle of skirts, Tilly was beside him. I saw her slip her arm into the crook of his, and she was whispering into his ear before she recognised who he was talking to. Shall we get some champagne, she said. And Charlie glanced at me apprehensively. She followed his eyes, and her mouth popped open into an O of surprise. Hello, Tilly, I said, my heart racing. I hope I find you well. Yes, she said, collecting herself quickly. And you? "'Your injury?' I shrugged, nodded, held up my cane. "'I wanted to speak, but no words would come. "'An awkward pause was developing until Charlie clapped his hands smartly. "'Well, let us find ourselves some champagne, shall we?' "'He pressed his forehead to Tilly's in a too-turtle-dovey gesture, "'then patted me on the arm in a way which made it clear that I was not invited along. "'Delighted to see you up and about, old chap.' "'I watched them go, arm in arm. "'So that was how things were now, I thought.' Chaplin had my career, and he had my girl. Maybe he was just the better man, and that was that. I began to feel I couldn't get my breath, that I needed to go outside. The desire to take back the things I had said to Tilly was like a physical pain. What did it matter if she'd done what she needed to do in order to get herself a job with Carnot? She'd come back from Paris to be with me. What did any amount of goving matter, really? Suddenly Charlie was back at my elbow. Listen, he said, you're not going to make a scene, are you? All's fair in love and war, all that? I shook him off and headed for the street. It crossed my bitter mind that I should just tell him about Tilly's audition with Carno, and that such was his romantic inclination to place women upon pedestals that he might then have dropped her at once like a hot coal. But I couldn't really do that. I'd done enough. Outside the fun factory I lit a cigarette and loosened my shirt buttons, trying to calm down. It was late afternoon by this time, and there were groups of Carmo performers hanging around, waiting for the omnibuses to take them to the evening shows. They peered through the big double doors at the festivities inside, not venturing in. I nearly didn't go back in myself, but I decided I couldn't leave after only that ridiculously brief conversation with Tilly. Inside, the tables were pushed to the sides, a band struck up, and dancing got underway. Tilly was sitting by herself now at the top table, watching the happy couple twirling away. No time like the present, I thought, and limped over there. She glanced up at me as I joined her. Lovely day, I ventured, and she nodded and smiled. That's Amy sorted out now then, she said. I suppose so, I said, not quite sure what she meant. Her career is his career now, Tilly explained. Alf will manage the shows and Amy can be in them. Well, good luck to them, I said. Well, it would not suit me, Tilly said firmly. In what way? To have my career determined so by my husband's. I see, I said. Why should I not have my own career? That's all, she said. There's Mary Lloyd over there, look. As big a drawer as any in the land, without any help from a husband. Why should I not be able to make my own way? I shrugged, then asked. What are you doing at the moment? Tilly paused for a second. Skating, she said then. With Charlie? Yes. She looked down at the table, and I realised I'd inadvertently scored a point off her. And you, she said. When are you returning? I'm not, I said. That's it for me. Tilly gasped. Oh, what a shame. Well, I said, there it is. What a shame, she said again, and I saw to myself that she was becoming upset. Do you mean to say that you'd really... Because of... Oh, you're such a... And she covered her face with her hands and fled from me, pushing her way through the dancers and out of sight. I sat by myself, wondering what had just happened. The band reached the end of the number, and the dancers came to a halt to applaud them. I watched Alf and Amy, the two of them beaming and out of breath. I was just thinking of slipping quietly away back to the railway station and up to Cambridge when I saw a familiar figure leaning over one of the tables helping himself and I clapped him heartily on the back. Stan, have you been here all along? Stan turned furtively and whispered. No, I came to get the bus for tonight's shows and I just slipped in. I thought there might be cake. How's the leg? Better, thanks.' It was good to see Stan again. He'd been one of my visitors when I left the hospital. He'd leaned on my injury and brought me a gift of hard-boiled eggs and nuts, which made a change from candied fruit. And he'd been making real headway at the fun factory while I was away, building up a good reputation for himself. Wasn't that Tilly you were just talking to? He said, munching away. However did you let that one slip through your fingers? I don't know, I muttered. I just don't know. When I first met you, you were pretending to be married. Remember that? He chuckled. I nodded. How could I have forgotten it? I thought of little else. They found out about it, though, and Sid gave me the choice to leave Carno or split up with Tilly, basically. And you chose Carno? Well, I didn't really have the chance to actually choose one way or t'other. It's complicated, I said. But, Stan frowned, however did they find out? Beats me, I said. No one knew except her and me. We told no one in the company. Stan had frozen a piece of wedding cake halfway to his mouth. What's up? I asked. You told me. Yes, but only you, and you weren't in the company then. Stan still hadn't moved. What is it? What's the matter? Well, you told me about it that day we had the picnic in Hartlepool, remember? And we laughed so much. I remember. And later, days later, Charlie asked me what was so funny. And I knew you two were friends, so I thought what was the harm. And I told him. Our eyes met, and I knew we were putting it together in the same instant. Charlie told Sid...